the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back as we head into Hour 3. It is a delight to have Hugh Hallman back in studio. He's been on the road, literally traipsing across Scotland. Glad to have him back. The former mayor of Tempe, an attorney in town and civic philanthropist. Hugh, welcome back. Good to see you, man. It is uh, great to be back, or perhaps I should say it's an honor and a privilege to be here. Yeah. You have a good time? Uh, We had a very nice time. We walked uh, 90 miles across uh, the middle efforts of uh, Scotland, and it was uh, very peaceful and quiet and gave me some time to think. And you bring back some of their local produce or liquid in liquid Producti? Form? No, uh, I did not, in fact. The one thing the country's named after, the one product that's named after the country. There you go. You got it right, although arguably it's the other way you around. You could have brought me a lot of tape. Yes. They, they <laughs> <laughs> you got, that would have served me right. Served you right. right. Exactly Here's a gross right. of scotch tape. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome back. We've um, we've missed you, and we're glad to have you. We have a lot to do. Uh, you like the new poster, courtesy of David. We mentioned it on the show a little bit earlier. You like that, huh? Uh, for Governor Ronald Reagan. Isn't that great? It is fabulous. Yeah, David brought that in. It is fabulous. Yeah. Reminds me of uh, sometimes better times, yeah. but I have to remind folks, that poster comes from an era that was uh, clouded by the Vietnam War so and great. all that kind of uh, difficulty, uh, certainly uh, we had others. And it's, so, that's a great point. You know, these leaders we esteem so much, uh, Ronald Reagan among them, uh, people can name others, of course, they, they did come from awful times. Churchill, let's say. Right. It took an awful time to, give a, to, to birth a great leader. And well, you think about California in the 60s, pretty awful. I, I would put it to you this way, that there are people like that wandering the earth constantly and continuously. And the times call on them to come forward. But more important, the people whom they lead want them then. Mm -hmm. And I often have to remind uh, folks who admire, for example, a Churchill, that the British people fired him as he was winning the war. Right. And so that, uh, in fact, in his uh, autobiographical materials, he describes being on a battlefield and uh, as the election was uh, coming to a close and speaking to a soldier and knowing very well that the soldier was embarrassed to speak to him because he had voted for his opponent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is to say he'd voted for the other party because, of course, the, the prime minister is selected based on the proportion of representation in the parliament and uh, that that's an important lesson, too that uh, leaders like Lincoln are not called forward at times that uh, don't require their skills in many ways, that we can get along with and prefer, perhaps, uh, folks who can't rise to much of a challenge because there aren't challenges to rise to. That's right. That's well put. And there is this conversation going on in particular parts of the conservative movement today about certain kinds of Republicans um, being wartime Republicans or peacetime Republicans. And you think of that 
in the sense of what you're talking about, we need people who can meet the times and fix the times. So Address the times. Right, address the times. Where Richard Nixon may have been suitable at one point, he would have been unsuitable in 19, at another point. Correct. And, and, the, and same for Ronald Reagan. Or Ronald that, Reagan, That yeah. having the opportunity to step in and fix what had gotten so messed up, one hopes that we have leaders who will do that for us today. The challenge being that uh, for most Americans – they're still relatively well off. Yes, we can point to current data, the polling data, uh, the economic analysis, uh, the recent reports that people are feeling much worse off than they were. And yet we recognize that Americans understand at some level that we are very, very well off. And that creates a lethargy uh, in our politics where we do not take the time to arm ourselves with the information, knowledge, and as voters, th- those those bits that help us select carefully those whom we need. And that's why a truly challenging time brings forward leaders like that, because it is the population who has to grow to the point of recognizing that they must have something other than the pablum that's dished out by the frequent uh, speaker. And so I want to point to your monologue from the first hour um, and commend it to people's attention. Please take a listen to this because Seth is teasing out in that monologue his his three laments, but in those laments are the jewels of the uh, the seeds of what we need to grow to go forward to uh, fix what's ailing us. And because these are not arguably fatal problems at the moment, they will become fatal. But at the moment, they are not. And those of us who ring the alarm bell about, for example, uh, debt and overspending, uh, uh, social issues that are plaguing us terribly, um, recognize that these are things that can destroy the country. And if we do not address them sooner than later, the increased risk that the country can be destroyed is brought to bear. And I don't think... What we have been blessed with as this legacy should be risked that easily. And so your monologue touches on, I want to quote a little bit from it, um, when you speak about the fact that we have had giants on both sides of the aisle who have articulated positions seriously and well. Uh, I think the, the best example of that you and I have, been discussing over the weekend was William F. Buckley. And you make note in your monologue about the debates he participated in and the people who were participating in those debates as serious, thoughtful, and sometimes funny people. And the, th- the one example I think that is most serious that I would tell people, go, go do a little quick Google search for the YouTube video of William F. Buckley on Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. And listen to that. That Johnny Carson would have William F. Buckley on at all speaks volumes about the time that he believed that that was something his audience could appreciate and understand and want to hear. Yes, Buckley's promoting a book, but the point was Buckley is still William F. Buckley in that chair as a guest. And I'm pretty well educated. You're very well educated. But some of the language he used even exceeds my abilities and it's the sort of thing it's 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 incredible stuff 
and that the audience could have appreciated a big portion of that is what's crucial, not just the language, but the context and the subjects of his discussion. And that Johnny Carson thought that was appropriate speaks volumes about that era and what people were willing to hear. What's going on? You've got Jimmy Carter as president. Uh, you've got some challenges uh, in the society. And Buckley's written a new book that is a one of his novels that is a spy thriller and talking about the difference between the Soviet Union and the United States. And at that time, the willingness to treat those as equal, that each of those countries has done horrible things like bomb cities. I'm just using an example that I'm pulling off. He did not. And Buckley makes the point that it is wrong, effectively, to equate those. And he uses the analogy of, you know, that one person pushes an old lady and another person pushes an old lady doesn't should not get you to the conclusion merely that they're the same because they've pushed old ladies. You should ask why were you pushing the old lady out from in front of the bus or were you pushing the old lady in front of the bus? Those are two very different things. And his point being that, of course, when the United States uh, was in war uh, and it has always been the case the United States has engaged in every war with the fundamental object of creating freedom and liberty and opportunity for the people who may be subject to that war battle. Across the board, there's not an example where that wasn't the motivating feature. Yes, to stop communism, let's talk about Vietnam. But at the end of the day, you had a war that was being waged to stop communism from subjecting more people to the horrible totalitarian regimes that existed. And it was a nice point made in A Year of Living Dangerously, uh, which is about that war and the escape from Vietnam, in which the lead character is, uh, is had a comment made to him about the fact that we, that is, we Americans, couldn't have known about the killing fields in Cambodia. And the right answer to that is, yes, we could. And in fact, we did. And that we were at war to save people from that kind of tyranny where 10 million people get murdered. That's a difference from what we are doing and what the Soviet Union is doing and now what the Russians are doing to the Ukrainians. Yeah. Buckley's plea in that novel was at the time, late 70s, I think 1978, was that too many novels about the Cold War didn't maintain moral distinctions between the two, and this was one that did. Let me pick up on that theme with you when we come right back. Hugh Hallman and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Hugh Hallman is my guest, former mayor of Tempe, philanthropist, attorney in town, uh, educator, and builder of educational institutions, uh, which we're going to get to in a moment as well. But just talking about that interesting video of uh, Johnny Carson hosting William Buckley on The Tonight Show in 1970, it was one of many appearances Buckley had there, and it got two segments. It, unfortunately, you don't get the second segment. You don't need it to get the point we're talking about. The first one is will do just fine. You can get it easily on YouTube. Interesting thing, as I was th listening to you talk about that, Hugh, you know, not only was Johnny Carson, as you well put it, thinking that there was an audience for William Buckley. You don't typically put on guests that, you know, will be what you call tune outs. Or Except for you. You put me on the stop air it. nonetheless. Stop it. And uh, we don't no, stop it. 
and um, and and the audience did. He was right. You hear the audience gelling to what Bill Buckley is saying. And then there's that third segment of any Bill Buckley audience, which you and I have discussed, of the people who listen to him and don't quite understand what he's saying, but know that they want to. Now, all of this in the context of what people know the Johnny Carson show for. He was the king of late night TV, to be sure. But in the world of comedians, all a comedian ever wanted, all a journeyman comedian ever wanted was to get invited to that seat William Buckley had. Then they will have made it. Then their their career was set. And he gave that seat to the likes of a serious conservative intellectual discussion and participated in well. You're absolutely right. On those moral distinctions, there is that famous line uh, of Colin Powell's. Do you remember this? His his response to the Archbishop of Canterbury who gave him a lecture on American militarism. And Colin Powell, I pulled it up uh, during the break, gave this big, long response, the conclusion to which I will give you. We have gone forth from our shores repeatedly over the last hundred years, and we've done this as recently as the last year in Afghanistan and put wonderful young men and women at risk, many of whom have lost their lives. And we have asked for nothing except enough ground to bury them in. And otherwise, we have returned home to seek our own lives in peace, to live our own lives in peace. But there comes a time when soft power or talking with evil will not work, where unfortunately hard power is the only thing that works. Our enemies who we've gone to war with or had war um, declared against us, they can't say that. That's correct. And that's the moral distinction. That's pushing the lady in front of the bus or pushing her out of the way of the bus, right? And that that is the major point here, right. and that we as uh, conservatives cannot lose sight of the fact that there is something – unique and striking about this country, its founding and what it means, Mm -hmm. and that that is worth fighting for, and at the end of the day, worth dying for. We obviously have had many people do just that, uh, who gave their last measure to preserve this union. And uh, the sadness we have is that we are now training people uh, to lose that, and I, I want to hate go, it. To hate it, I want to go back to your point of, as you describe these great people, you recognize in your lament uh, that you're reminded of the lessons from Churchill. Yeah. That one of the chief tasks of the political scientist is never to confuse mediocrity with true greatness. Right. And I quote, "Because at the end of the day, we get what we train." Mm-hmm. Period. Unquote. Now, I had to do a little editing. Okay. I write these things fast. He, no, he, it's, it's always brilliant. It was the split infinitive I had to edit. Uh, I corrected that in my, in my commentary. Um, the, the point would be that our education system is, I would say, primarily at fault for creating an environment in which young people first in the 60s and 70s were taught to despise this nation. They became our university professors who are now teaching in our universities, training students to go out into grade schools, middle schools, high schools, and teach the disdain for this society. And all of those people are becoming our voters. 
That's what and I teachers. and teachers. No. That's yeah, that's exactly right. So no. uh, these teachers are now teaching their students to hate the country as much as they were taught to hate it, as much as their university professors were taught to hate it, and were not taught the lessons of there is a moral distinction between pushing the old lady in front of the bus or pulling her from in front of the bus, and that those moral distinctions are crucial in understanding why this society is worth preserving. It is not perfect. I've never argued it's perfect. Uh, those who want to promote the 1619 Project and say that that is the defining determination of what the society is about completely fail to understand that those of us on the other side recognize imperfections. That's why Lincoln quotes from and cites to fourscore and seven years ago, he was citing 1776, the true founding of this country that understood that all men and women are created equal and that the failure of the Constitution, as brilliant as it was, was the compromise that treated some human beings as three fifths and slaves. And he understood that distinction and articulates that without rubbing anybody's nose in it. At a battlefield. Now you know one of the interesting things we we were we were talking Don't get that hot about stuff. No, I it's good. I, yeah. It's it's uh, 1776 is a good thing to get hot about. We were talking about on a run over the weekend that um, that on that on that score of teachers who were taught to hate the country, uh, they 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 grew up in an educational environment where they they probably encountered things like the Federalist Papers, uh, as you were pointing out. They probably had teachers that referenced them or had their students read them. Uh, once those students were taught enough to hate, they realized there was probably no point in reading or teaching the Federalist Papers. So then another generation comes along where you probably can graduate in 90 percent of the colleges and universities in this country never having heard of the Federalist Papers, just as you can graduate. Or knowing how to spell it. Yes, just as you can graduate from over 70% of English literature class uh, majors in this country and never see Shakespeare. So you have this ever-descending this ever-descending fall. Uh, you, you usually uh, will refer to it as, as, as a race to the bottom or something like that. I, I My commentary yeah. to you as I listen to you saying it and you use the very beautiful phrase, the ever-descending cascade uh, yeah. toward lower and lower standards, yeah. expectations, and yes, results, period, unquote. That's your writing. It's okay. brilliant writing. And I immediately <laughs> had to add the lowest common denominator. Right. So, so, so we are now beginning to not only educate to mediocrity, but that mediocrity becomes the new high point of the mountain, and the next level will fall somewhere below that, and the next level somewhere below that, so that within two generations, you won't even see the Federalist Papers in a college or university uh, library. Agreed. And that is our gravest challenge. So for us... I think it means continuing to re-educate ourselves about those founding principles, that great writing. Go and watch a few of these YouTube uh, debates with William F. Buckley and others and understand what was at stake. And when we come back, I want to pick up on this about this notion of cultural literacy, oh, if I okay. may, because that's what we're really talking about. Good. And how quickly we have allowed our cultural literacy to be devoid of all of these crucially important principles and lessons for the future. All right, great. Hugh Hallman and I will be right back on cultural literacy when we return.
Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Hugh Holman is my guest. What was that pratter during the break about Hugh Holman wanting to add a, or you wanting, or someone wanting to add an Elvis poster to the window? What was that about? Um, so uh, earlier, I, I brought in the, the the Ronald Reagan poster, which we've discussed, yeah. and uh, I mentioned to Hugh that I was uh, a little disappointed that uh, you didn't appreciate the fact that I also had an original poster from the '68 Elvis comeback special. Well, we have a window of limited space, right? We all have to understand the problem of what would you call it economies of of use and scale that we don't want to turn into a tragedy of the commons as it stands now. That's a bad use of that concept, but go ahead. We have a Tom Selleck advertisement for our company. Yes. We have Jack Kemp on the cover of national review back when we all liked that sort of thing. And we have Ronald Reagan for governor. Why would we want to, one of these things doesn't belong with Elvis it. Uh, so what he's forgotten about Elvis is that he actually was a conservative. I r- remind you that he showed up at the White House and proposed to Richard Nixon that he be deputized as some yes. sort of secret agent <laughs> yeah, uh, to yeah. assist uh, to assist the government in sussing out uh, drug problems. Yes. Nonetheless, we're going to keep it with my approval before we start I festooning the window with, your, with Elvis Presley. All right. uh, but, you know, Tom Selleck was also a conservative and did quite a lot to advance our cause. Yes. Put down the Watts riots in nineteen in the National Guard. You know that? I didn't know that. Yeah. 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 Oh, wow. yeah, through and through. Anyway, you want well. This so, is cultural uh, literacy. Cu- cultural <laughs> yes, literacy. this is not a bad entree is, to it. Yes, that that is the amazing uh, point about Seth is that he is not only a political philosopher, but he can find a pop culture reference for almost everything. So whenever I utter an idea, something pops up into my phone uh, with a pop culture reference to it uh, so that I have to suffer from that. I've forgotten what was this weekend. So that you can know that there is a market for what it is that you say. Ah, so that there is a broader market for what I say. So this lowest common denominator in cultural literacy, the, the, the point we were making in the last segment was that uh, we have lost a cultural literacy about the important uh, principles and the the founding principles for this society and what those threads of the fabric are that make up this society. Um, and in that context, I'm reminded that y- you think about the kinds of things people at one time were taught in college as part of a, a program. If you're going to take political philosophy, for example, you're going to read Dante's Inferno. Because uh, Dante Alighieri is writing a book that is a political uh, satire about the people of that era. And the challenge for a modern reader is that was written at a time where people would have understood the references he's making, both to the the uh, ancient Greeks and, and Roman uh, structures he's talking about, but also to the specific people he's making fun of. And putting them in hell in certain positions to be punished for their crimes that they committed as politicians or statesmen, etc. And that would have been something one would have understood. Well, a modern reader, you may, almost anybody who reads this, doesn't have those references. So you have to have the crib notes and you've got to work through it to understand that this really tough read is actually a comedy. Hence, uh, the divine comedy. And... The sadness for me is we don't read that much anymore, but in addition, 
even in the modern times, listening to a William F. Buckley make references to things that are only 40 or 50 years old, right. most people would not understand them today at all. Right. And so you and I sit here and talk about Abraham Lincoln mm. as if everybody understood, uh, understands that. Now, you, your audience, they understand those references. But you go out onto the stump and you make a reference to, as I did in the earlier segment, to the fact that Lincoln cites four score and seven years ago was the founding of the country is 1776 and the Declaration of Independence as the founding document that he was pointing to because it did not have the compromise that caused the sufferance of the Civil War. That we do not have a cultural literacy about things that happened just in the last 50 years that people don't understand Ronald Reagan or Barry, F., uh, Barry Goldwater's major defeat in 1964. Well, for those of us who suffered through that, we remember that was painful and it took forever to recover. And then, as I've mentioned to you before, the difference between 1964 and 1980, the victory of all the principles Barry Goldwater was articulating was only 16 years. Yeah. That's the arc of time we have to work in to get this turned around, and we can. That's a great point. Let's talk about the importance of 16 years when we come right back. Hugh Hallman is my guest. I'm Seth Leapson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Hugh Hallman is my guest. I was interested and intrigued by what you said with regard to the importance of 16 years in respect to cultural literacy, Hugh. The phrase cultural literacy has been with us a long time, but it was popularized by a scholar at the University of Virginia named E.D. Hirsch uh, some years ago when he thought that, uh, well, you know, the historian Arthur Schlesinger before him had the same point from the historical perspective, which is that without uh, knowing a, a common culture, we can't really be a country. I mean, you know, there's a lot more to it than that, but that's the basic idea. There has to be a cultural lingua franca, if you will, and it begins with the notion that uh, children, Plato understood this, almost everyone understands this, except maybe the right until two years ago, children are blank slates and they will represent what you draw on them. The left understood that much better than the right, which is why we find ourselves in the times we find ourselves. Right. The last 50 years, the left has been scribbling on the tabula exactly rasa. Right. Exactly right. Exactly the point. And when you think about what you can do to a kid from age zero to 16 – and what you can educate, you can educate a man in the mind or, and morals, or you can educate a menace to society, as Teddy Roosevelt put it. And that was really my third lament here, which is what we're using and doing with our children in society. Um, 16 years is, all, is, is, is just about the right amount of time that it would take to uh, immerse a child into what you would want him to know if you viewed the child as an instrument of ideological war. And that's why many are raising their eyebrows at uh, Kohl's, for instance, today, the department store Kohl's, for instance, today, having transgender clothing for three-year-olds. It's a surprise to those of us who kind of grew up in a, in, a, in a much more moderate time. It's not a surprise to the left. They understand exactly what they're doing. Get them young. You must be taught. You, Rogers and Hammerstein taught this in South Pacific. You, you must be taught at an early age. Get them at six or seven or eight. Well, Coles is doing them one better. They're getting them at three. 
and the use and abuse of children for adult political wars. That's my other lament. Um, it's 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 not going to lead just to a bad society when that child turns 16, 17, or 18, not when millions of them become 16, 17, or 18, but it's actually, I think, an abusive childhood, and it's abuse of the use of children and what children are supposed to be. They're not supposed to be political hand grenades. Anyway, that's my other lament. And the left, the left believes they should be hand grenades. Every, every revolutionary... Marxist revolutionary talks about this. I think I quoted Che Guevara, for example, in, in one case in my monologue earlier. Anyway, my lament about the children. That's an important lament, and I've got to make three points, and I'll hope to do it quickly in order. First, in your opening sentence, you referred to Hirsch, Schlesinger, and Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> that is an example of cultural literacy. Yeah, okay. That you can uh, – folks, there's no script here. We sit down and we start talking. <laughs> yeah. And your host here has this massive amount of information, facts, uh, sentences, phrases, concepts, ideas, and he can pull from all sorts of areas. And it drips off his tongue like listening to uh, William F. Buckley. And it requires the listener to have an intelligence to understand how all of that fits together. You do the same. You, well, no, I don't. Your literacy is better than mine, but I always learn from you. Your audience's literacy is better. The cultural literacy is better than mine. I learn from them. I am grateful for this opportunity, as I expressed to you on regular occasion. That's point one. That demonstrates the point that cultural literacy that you can in one sentence rip off a Hirsch, Schlesinger, and <laughs> Teddy Roosevelt. And I don't mean steal from them. I mean you just stated them. Okay. Second. We now are lamenting the fact that we've got the left in control. Let's start with how that happened. First, we first talked about in the last segment our education system training what we now have in our teachers and our university professors who are now training our youngest students to these values. That's an important loss to our society when we lose the fundamental principles and culture on which this society is based and on which it will continue to exist that's a that's a crucial piece. But our lament should be about the fact that those of us who believe as we do have to recognize that we've got to stop having arguments over how close this election was. And if only we counted a few more votes my way, I would have won. Let's start stop having these kinds of uh, panic moments or, or um, uh, complaints when the right answer is. If we do our job right, we won't be facing close elections. Right. We will be having Ronald Reagan landslides in 1984. Yeah. He won yeah. 49 of 50 states, ladies and gentlemen. That's what we should be. And Barry Goldwater did not whine about the fact that he took the worst loss in a presidential election ever. He went out and kept fighting, and that's a really important lesson to those of us who would otherwise yield the field because our emotions get overwhelmed by, number one, the loss, and number two, the attacks. We have to gird ourselves, steel ourselves against those attacks, and remember, it's about winning elections, and winning elections is about winning the minds and hearts of people. And that means doing it the right way and going out and convincing the American people or the voters in Arizona or the voters in Tempe or anything else about what is the right issue. That requires voters to care enough. 
to educate themselves in an environment in which social media is now used that any idiot with a keyboard can put out complete garbage. And unfortunately, if it touches on some points that some people want to believe, they'll follow that. The more extreme, the better. Absolutely. If it bleeds, it leads. Yeah. Yeah. And it's gotten worse. Yeah. So the final point about the use of children. Yeah. We're in this position because we've seen the left go from changing our educational institutions to testing the most important thing. Can they herd us into the pens they want to herd us in as sheep so that we can be more easily led? Well, they tested it brilliantly. COVID. Mm -hmm. We saw the use and abuse of government power to demonstrate how much authority the U.S. government, the federal government, the state governments, the local governments could, could impose on people and how much they would take and refuse to, to uh, object. And we found, pulling from that socialist handbook, that the few people who did stand up because it was an era in which it required that leadership – the handbook was belittle them. Use the word denier. That is the new word of the left. You are an environmental climate change denier. You are a COVID denier. You're an election denier. That's the easy way in a couple of words to say this is a fruitcake who's not worth listening to. They are crazy. It does mean we have to parse the words carefully and start using the opportunity to educate ourselves about who's truly a conservative, who truly believes this stuff. Why do they believe this? Why do they feel the way they do about abortion? Why do they feel the way they do about gun rights? Why do they feel the way they do about any other issue? That's a crucially important test. I'm going to respond when I come right back. Thank you very much. We'll be right back. With all the other problems, think about the economy right now. There's talk of recession in the horizon. Inflation is anything but uh, transitory. You still have the bank failures and the stock market volatility. Why refi has an investment in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return? It's not correlated to the stock market or the Fed. A portfolio where you can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you like, with no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. There are no fees in the secure collateralized portfolio that delivers a high fixed interest rate. Why Refi is local. I encourage you to stop by their offices on the 101 in Scottsdale Road. I've been there many times, and I can tell you, you will not get a sales pitch. No one's going to ask you to sign a thing. When you meet with the team at Why, at why Refi, you'll see why I like and trust them so much, and you can too. A due diligence approved firm, you can earn up to a 10.25% rate of return. That's right, a 10.25% fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. The word invest, the letter Y, then refy.com or give them a call at 888-YREFI-34, 888-YREFI-34. G.K. Chesterton, I told you the story before, some in the audience as well, postulated a, a student from abroad who was uh, engaging uh, and came from a culture of cannibalism, meeting his uh, roommate at Cambridge University and asked his roommate uh, when lunchtime was and uh, what kind of person he might like to have. And in for asking lunch. the uh, for lunch, and um, in um, asking his roommate about that, the roommate uh, was a little bit shocked and stunned, and said, "Well, we don't eat people here." 
and the cannibal, cannibal asked why, and he said, well, we just don't do that here. Chesterton's point was a student from perhaps a generation before that would have been able to give him the reasons rather than just mere preference or choice. And so I'm listening to you, Hugh, talk about the roiling waters in the conservative movement today and the divisions within it. And, you know, there's different labels. There's national conservatism or NatCon and this kind of conservatism and this kind of conservatism. When what we need and what you've been working on so well on this show and elsewhere, and maybe we can put something more in form of pen on paper, we don't need these other multi-flavored versions of conservatism. We need a why conservatism, why conservatism matters, what it is and what its philosophical underpinnings are because I think we're lost at sea without them and all we're doing is now just talking about preferences as in the difference between the cannibal who would like to eat you for lunch and I who would like to eat a roast beef sandwich which ultimately leads you to this ratio of distinctions between the man who would push a woman in front of a bush, bus as, as opposed to the man who would push a woman out of the way of the bus. The moral distinctions matter and the moral underpinnings of this movement matter. And you matter greatly. And the audience, thank you. You matter to us most of all. David, thank you. Audience, thank you. Hugh, thank you. Until tomorrow, he's Hugh Hallman. I'm Seth Liebson. God bless you all. Class is dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.